Hello everyone, I'm Nayaswami Asha, and this is the second of a four-part series about the chakras. And it's a very interesting series because the chakras are really a central principle of the spiritual path, and four classes is enough at least to give us an outline. Uh, during the week I received one question, which in many ways uh, epitomizes for me uh, the confusion that, that sets in about the chakras. I stated last a session, and I want to articulate it again. What I'm expressing to you this evening is my understanding received from Swami Kriyananda, which of course is the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. There are many, 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 many things that people say about the chakras. And it's not exactly that I want to dispute other people's interpretations uh, one way or another. In fact, most of the time, and I encourage you if you have contradictory ideas about what the chakras mean, uh, please submit the questions either through uh, India Online or by writing directly to me, Nayaswami Asha. I have my own website, which is my name, nayaswamiasha.org. Just you can contact me through that and send me your questions. Um, as I was starting to say, it's not, some of, some people have different opinions about things and explain things in different ways. But often it's just a matter of orienting ourselves correctly. Um, the chakras, of course, are one of the fundamental uh, inner spiritual realities, as I was explaining last week in uh, general terms. You know, what are the chakras? How do they work? We're going to, because we have three more weeks, we'll give a lot more detail than we have so far. But it was interesting, I was reflecting on this recently, that in the first 10 or 15 years of being on the spiritual path, even though I was doing Kriya Yoga, and Kriya Yoga involves uh, sending energy through the chakras, I never really gave a serious study um, to the subject. Of course, I was learning many things all at the same time. But also, for me, even very esoteric uh, aspects of the spiritual path need to have a practical expression for, 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 for me to be interested in them. It's just the way my mind works. It's, it's like my own spiritual life it, it is, is not a theory to me. It's, it's a question of how I can actually make my life better, which is to say happier, more secure, uh, more, more aligned to high values. Let me, let me phrase it a little differently. Somewhat of the, uh, the overall orientation of India towards spiritual life is um, in the phrase Sanatan Dharma, which means eternal truth, or even as I've heard it defined, that which is. That the whole of the spiritual path, um, all the practices, all the philosophy, is just a statement, it's a, it's a scientific statement of the way life is. Uh, I used to give a class, I called it, How the World Works and Why. And that's really what Sanatana Dharma is, how the world works and why it works that way. And most importantly, how we as human beings can cooperate and f fit in with that system. Uh, at least for me, and I, I really think for most people, it's not enough just to contemplate things in the abstract. The real problem, as Yogananda described it in his book, um, the Science of Religion, which was the first book that he published, is that people want to be happy, they want to experience happiness, they want to escape suffering. 
and happiness is a lower dimension of bliss. Bliss is what we really want to experience. We want to experience bliss, which is our own nature, and repudiate all of those ways of being which interfere with that bliss. And all of spirituality, all of religious teaching, is simply that. No matter how complicated or esoteric it gets, it's how the world works and why, from the point of view of what really matters to a human being which is experiencing happiness and escaping suffering. Now, in the West, where this understanding is, uh, Sanatana Dharma is not something that rolls easily off the, the tongue of the average Westerner, religion is something more from the outside. You have these religious institutions, you have churches, you have dogmas, you have rituals. Of course, in India also, a great deal of that also exists, but I'm talking about the pure form in India, pure Sanatana Dharma, not, honestly, not Hinduism, not Hinduism as it's practiced with its elaborate rituals and so on. But in the West, especially, religion is more from the outside in. And it's more about what what do I believe, what do I belong to, and only uh, much less from who am I in my deepest self. Now, my own spiritual life, even though I was born in the West, has really been an internal experience. And I don't mean by that that it's been visions and uh, you know shifting realities. I wish I could say it has been. It has been shifting realities, but more on the level of happiness, bliss, escaping suffering, rather than the entire um, fabric of the universe cracking and my looking through it. But The goal of my life, even from a young age, before I had any concept of any of this, was that I wanted to be happy and to escape suffering. I didn't know that Master had written that out in a book. I didn't know about Master. But that's what I wanted. So even the subject of the chakras at first, meaning my first decade of spiritual life, I couldn't really see how it related. It just seemed like an esoteric fact to me. But... Uh, Then, at one point, Swami Kriyananda did a week-long series of classes on the chakras. And he he simplified it, for one thing, or to say it more more accurately, he, he reduced it. He reduced it to the essential points, and those essential points were and are extremely practical. Um, last week I had a question, the essence of which was, how do I know which chakra is the problem? And I I had to put it off to a certain extent by saying, look, I haven't really explained about the chakras. But what the chakras really do, especially, well, the five chakras, is they explain what a balanced human being looks like. And this was how I got into the subject. So Amaji explained, and this is what I'm sharing with you in these sessions, what a balanced human being looks like. And whenever we have aberrations in our life experience, it's because in one way or another we're out of balance with what a balanced human being would be like. And the fascinating aspect about the chakras, you see, is that each one of them, the, the five, especially the, five, the first five chakras together, well, actually this one is part of it too, but the first five chakras together, describe the progression of human consciousness and what a balanced human being looks like. I received a question last week that I didn't answer because I'd, it, I felt it was premature for the subject, but it, uh, someone asked me, 
I'm a student about to face my exams. Uh, what is the most important chakra for me to concentrate on? And reflecting on that uh, in anticipation of this class today, the, it's, it's the same issue, which is where are we out of balance? And depending on how and in what way we're out of balance, that is an outward indication of an inner reality. And I think I explained a little last week, but let me reiterate it again. Everything in the material world begins on a more subtle level. Um, They talk about the three levels of reality, the causal, the astral, and the material world, the three worlds, which are often referred to in scripture and by sages and so on. These three worlds represent the way in which the, uh, the material world, the world we're most familiar with, is manifested. Now, Swami Kriyananda had a wonderful way of taking even very esoteric ideas and giving us an explanation that was accessible even from our state of consciousness. And I can't do better than my own teacher, so let me use his own method to speak of this. We speak of the causal world as the world of thought, the astral world as the world of energy, material world is what we know around us. But even in the material world, we can see how things are manifested here in these three steps. Let's just uh, talk about a building. I'm standing in a building right now, and the, the building that I'm standing in is the home in which I live, and I happen to have been part of the process that resulted in the construction of this home. I, oh, uh, we did not build it, but friends of ours built it, and I was here when they were building it. The first thing that happened was there was an idea. Oh, you know, for the money that I, I have on hand to use in a certain way, I could build a home. And so before anything else could happen, there, it had to exist on the idea level, on the level of thought. So here's the thought. We're going to build a house. Then energy had to be applied to the building of this house. But the first energy um, was more subtle than the actual physical house that I'm now standing in. And that was the level of planning and architecture and eventually drawing up blueprints so that the, the idea of the house has now taken more exact form, but it's still, it still, it doesn't have a material manifestation, but the pattern is there. And it's from this pattern, first the idea, then the energetic pattern is there. And then that energetic pattern, by the application of more energy and a grosser kind of energy, a grosser kind of energy in the sense of less subtle. Big pieces of wood had to be hauled in, cement trucks had to come, men and women had to, had to put out a lot of energy like this. And then gradually, what started as an idea what came into a a blueprint finally manifests as a physical house. And now I can run up and down the stairs and go into the kitchen and cook and stand in the living room as I'm standing now and talk to all of you. These are, uh, to our experience, the same levels of thought, um, energy in the astral world, and then finally physical manifestation. Now, with us... 
by the time something comes out that I'm angry about this, that I'm attached to that, that I'm afraid of this, that I'm uh, unable to stay on center about this point, all three of those levels have had to exist. First there was the thought or the idea that this is an anxiety-causing reality, for example. Then the pattern gets set because I keep continually feeding that thought and it becomes a pattern, and then that pattern manifests. Well, when we act, when we have thoughts, as I was saying last week, everything that we do is a manifestation of a particular perception of reality. Now that perception of reality, it's very important to understand, is not necessarily reality. It's our perception of reality. It's the idea we have about reality. And when we have that idea about reality, we put out a certain force, and that force creates magnetism, and then that magnetism keeps re-expressing itself. It becomes an actual action. As an example, even though um, I may be able to articulate the idea that I am not my physical body, I am one with the infinite spirit, when something comes at me that threatens the welfare of my physical body, um, a, a, a car is driving right at me. I think I talked about that last week. A car is driving right at me, and all of a sudden I feel threatened. So my perception of reality is that if something happens to this physical body, it's going to, it's going to be unpleasant. It's going to cause suffering for me. So the, I, the perception of reality, the idea, is that something might happen to this physical body. My idea is that that would be a bad thing. I become anxious about that, and then I scream. Then I cry out, <gasps> you know. And if I had, in the, in the case that I was describing, I believe last week, the collision was averted, but I went through the whole cycle, my perception of reality. Now, last week I also was explaining how the chakras, in, and this is only one aspect of the chakras, but from the earth chakra to the spiritual eye, represent perceptions of reality. Is the physical world and my physical body the reality, is it reality? This is what the earth chakra represents. My welfare at the expense of all others is the primary source of my happiness. And to affirm that brings me happiness and helps me avert suffering. Or am I one with the infinite spirit, which is what the Christ Center represents, and my affirmation of my oneness with spirit is the way to bring me happiness and to avert suffering. And every decision that we make in our lives, as I was explaining last week, falls somewhere on that spectrum between total um, identification with material reality as reality or total identification with spirit, the spiritual world as reality. Now, all of those are the idea level, and more than ideas because there are actual perception, but that's, those are our thoughts. Okay? And every time we respond, we add energy to that, and that energy gradually makes a pattern. 
And that pattern, as I was explaining last week, is, is, is registered in whatever chakra corresponds to our ideas about reality. We have these ideas about reality, and then we start making a pattern. And if somebody, uh, if you're in the habit of taking money on a regular basis from someone, then you're thinking, well, if I get it, that makes me happy. The fact that they lose it has no effect on my happiness. As long as I can have what I want, then their unhappiness is of no consequence to me. And so we build up the pattern of taking, taking without regard for the effect of it. Or if we are generous in our nature, kind in our nature, the I'm going to explain this a little more clearly in a little bit, the, the heart chakra representing a greater sense of unity, we build up a pattern of giving. And the uh, we every time we have a giving thought and act on it, then that pattern gets a little stronger in the chakras. And so when it comes time for us to take a new physical body, the chakras are equivalent to the blueprint. And we, when we die, when the physical body falls away, when we go into the astral world, the pattern of our chakras, the vibration is the vibration of energy. It's who we are. And that vibration of the chakras determines what astral universe we go into and what our experience of that astral universe is and how long that astral karma lasts. And then there's a certain point at which the unfulfilled material desires, the patterns that we have built up in those very same chakras, desiring things that we believe are essential to our happiness is also a pattern in the chakras. If, in a very simple way, we, let's say we smoke cigarettes a lot when we were in the physical world, or we became extremely fond of fudge brownies, as an example, or pizza, or are very attached to a particular place in the physical world, or a particular person who is now incarnated, or we want the opportunity to be a movie star, or a great pianist, or a scientist, or something that requires that we be in the material world in order to express it. That's also a pattern, because if that's an idea that we had consistently, you know, I get up in the morning and I have my cup of coffee and my almond croissant, and we think, oh, I love the mornings when I sip my coffee and I eat my almond croissant. And it makes us so happy. That's an idea that we have that forms a blueprint that we act on and it becomes a pattern in the chakras. So we're up there in the astral world and things are pretty nice, except that we notice that so-and-so that I'm attached to is incarnated there. And we're thinking about how we used to sit after dinner and we used to smoke those cigarettes and how nice that was. Or we think about sexuality or various things that require a physical body to have. That's a pattern that we built up in the chakras. And another word for that is karma. That's, those are vortices of energy and they have magnetism and that magnetism keeps drawing that, that, uh, uh, that energy. We want that energy. So we're in the astral world and gradually that 
unfulfilled material karma, those unfulfilled material desires, or the habitual material desires that we can't satisfy in the astral world, and we we are drawn back in to a physical body. I think of it a little bit like this. Um, I mean, just again, to give us an, an analogy of how this could work. Let's say you have an evening off. You don't have any guests in the house. The children are off at school. Your husband or your wife has something else to do. You have a whole evening to yourself. And you think, I think I'm really going to meditate. I'm going to have a really long meditation. I'm going to you know, read a few, uh, a few pages out of a spiritual book. Maybe I'll practice some chants I'm trying to learn. So you sit down. Maybe you sit down and you start. And you're sitting there for a few minutes. Then all of a sudden you think, wow, you know, I'm really hungry. And it's, it's a little hard to meditate when I'm so hungry. Maybe I should stop and just have supper, just a light supper, just a little supper. I can read my spiritual books over supper. Then I'll come back and meditate. So then you get up and you walk over to the refrigerator or you go in the kitchen and you look around, but there's not anything there that really appeals to you and you're really hungry. And then you realize that this new pizza place has just opened down the street. And since you don't have to feed the kids tonight, maybe this would be the time to get the pizza. And then you go out to get the pizza, and you're just going to pick it up and bring it home. But when you're there, you meet one of your neighbors. And what do you know? They're off to see that new movie that you had really wanted to see. And pretty soon you're going off with them to the movies. And you come home hours later, and you see your meditation cushion sitting there, and maybe your mala is sort of laid out, and oh yeah, that's what I was going to do. But this pattern inside of me of hunger, of, of wanting a particular, of, of pizza, of wanting company, of desire for the movies, and all of a sudden you're just drawn into something else. And I think that's what happens to us in the astral world. Everything is wonderful, and then it occurs to us that we're a little hungry for something. And all of those hungers and habits are registered in the chakras and in our energetic body, that's still the blueprint of who we are. I mean, this is the principle of the spiritual path where you want to re, um, re-establish, uh, you know, overcome your desires and re-establish new habits so that you'll build a different pattern in your chakras so that who you are will be somebody completely else and you won't be in the astral world with a sudden desire for pizza or in your own living room with a sudden desire for pizza. Now, all of this has to be applied judiciously. You can't just say, well, if I'm supposed to renounce, I'll renounce everything. There's no shortcut here. Whatever pattern we've built up, we have to unravel it also in a thoughtful and in a practical manner. Otherwise, we just boing back and forth, which is also a pattern in the chakras (laughs) to be too extreme and then to bounce back You know, we have to build this uh, changed reality very slowly and very steadily. So, again, each one of the chakras represents a certain vibration, and those vibrations together make a balanced human being. And let's say we're a student who who needs to study for his exams. There's no student studying for exams chakra, per se. It's a question of you as an individual and what patterns have you built up? 
and what patterns are it uh, are they that um, distract you from the, whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish. And so you have to then begin to look at yourself. And back to what I was saying at the beginning when Swamiji started talking about the chakras as I'm describing it, as being this storehouse of the, of the collective effect of all the thoughts and all the actions that we have, and then that becoming the pattern, and then that pattern dictating how we express. All of a sudden, I, I could see from how we express, we can also understand what's going on in the chakras. And once we understand what's going on in the chakras, then we can activate, you see, completely different methods of changing ourselves. And this has actually brought me to an explanation of Kriya Yoga, really, of Kriya, the specific technique that Master gave us, and how he explains in Autobiography of a Yogi why Kriya Yoga is what he calls the airplane route to God. It's such a, a powerful, if there is such a thing as a shortcut, is, is the powerful shortcut. Because what Kriya Yoga does is Kriya Yoga backs up from the material plane and it works on the blueprint. And just as this house that I'm standing in, of which you can only see the curtains behind me, is the exact result of the blueprint. A builder can look at the blueprint and he knows what the house is going to be. And if the house needs to be different, if the house wants to be different, if someone wants the house to be different, you have to change the blueprint. And then manifesting from that blueprint will bring another reality. So what it is when we're doing Kriya Yoga is we are circulating energy directly through the chakras and uh, by a, a relationship of magnetism, which I'll explain a little more clearly, but not, not right now. Um, the, the current that we generate, the energetic current that we generate with Kriya Yoga just changes the blueprint. And so that's why people find when they start meditating, especially when they start doing Kriya or some technique like it, which actually has a profound effect on the blueprint in the chakras, that we just become different. Whereas, for example, if a certain thing happened, it may have been infallibly true that we would respond in a certain way. This person could always get my goat. <laughs> this, would, this was something I always wanted to do and I love to do. But now I'm just not inclined to. I'm not inclined to become upset by that person. I'm not inclined to drink my coffee every morning and eat my croissant. I've realized that, uh, you know, it's better to have a piece of fruit in the morning and the coffee doesn't help me. I've changed the pattern. And so now I just feel like a different person. This is why we can change so radically once we start meditating because we rewrite the blueprint. And over the course of a lifetime, just think about it, over decades of doing Kriya, you just keep rewriting the blueprint. And you don't ever have to build the whole house and say, oh wow, the kitchen is too small. You know, the guest room is on the wrong side. This window lets the sun in in a way that's very unpleasant. You don't have to go all the way through all that effort to build it before you notice that the pattern was wrong. 
Rather, we just start aligning the inner pattern with a higher vibration, and automatically we shift it. Automatically we become someone else. That's why also the change that results from serious spiritual practice, Kriya is an example of serious spiritual practice, but I don't want to be sectarian in this, because Sanatana Dharma is simply that which is, and nobody owns this. This is just the way we're made. But serious spiritual practice that cooperates with the reality of the chakras is not usually a big, dramatic, from night to morning sort of, I'm somebody else, I've had this epiphany. Sometimes we do have epiphanies. But the the transformation of Kriya is more, as one of my friends put it, like ice melting. There's just this big block of ice, and then gradually it shifts. And you don't exactly notice when or how, but it just gradually shifts and eventually even disappears, which is to say cardinal aspects of your own nature that were committed to a reality lower than pure spirit, they just melt away because the energy has been transformed by the practices. And, of course, all of this is why the chakras are so important. Now, uh, there's one other question that I received this morning, which, um, let me just, let me sort of think for a minute whether or not, well, actually, this, this question, uh, I'll, I'll answer it. It, 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 it represents misunderstanding of many aspects of the chakra, so let me try to clarify those aspects first. There are many different characteristics of each chakra. And in fact, just for your information, I have this chart with very small print, so you don't have to try to capture it on the screen right now, which um, Ananda Online India will make available to you in the form of a PDF. So uh, I think if you contact them, and then there's there's a second sheet as well, which is affirmations that have to do with each of the chakras, which you will learn in the course of this class. But both of these um, pieces of paper, handouts, that I would give people in class will be available to you. And the, the chart with all the little small writing on it has many different characteristics for each chakra. There's planets, there's jewels, there's colors, um, there's uh, aspects of Patanjali's eight, Eightfold Path, all sorts of ways you can look at the chakras. One of the most useful ones that I want to now sort of go through to help us uh, w- work with are <clears throat> the, the stages of manifestation. I've referred to it a little bit, which is earth, water, fire, air, and then here's the word ether, which is not um, what you take to put you out when you go to the dentist, but Ether is a more subtle uh, element of creation. And then what Master called super ether, which I think is just his way of playing with English language. And we're talking about the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, and then the, the spiritual eye is the sixth chakra. Here's the spiritual eye. Here's the heart. Just makes it easier for you to see them like that. Now, interestingly, in terms of a progressive perception of reality. This earth, water, fire, air, ether 
it's very interesting in this way. We can, we can work it either from the bottom up or the top down. I'll do it from the top down. Super ether. Ether, let me, I'll, first I'll define ether. Ether is the substance of creation, is how it's esoterically defined. And it, it, it's a, a concept that used to be more common in science, but is still somewhat used in, uh, in spiritual thinking which is that even air itself is a grosser manifestation, but ether is the, the, um, the material reality behind even air, more subtle. And super ether is sort of like just as you're, as you're moving from spirit into matter. Now, I'm, these are not really accurate statements, but this is a way to get a feeling for it. Because what we're trying to do is we're trying to take something esoteric and think how to think about it in a way that'll help us. So you start with the spiritual eye, and this is the individual self conscious of the infinite. That's what the spiritual eye represents. And as, as creation manifests, first there's spirit, and then there is the one substance from which everything is made, which is ether. And it's, it's, um, it's all pervasive. It, it's the force behind everything. It's not, it's not separate. Separateness is not obvious. We're beginning to separate from spirit, but we're still very much connected. Then the ether goes down into the form of air. And air is distinct gases that cannot be perceived with the, with the senses, but can be measured. You have oxygen, you have the lack of oxygen. Air has uh, other things in it, other gases in it. But it still gives the impression, from the point of view of the senses, of this unified reality. Then comes fire, and, and fire is the transforming energy. Then water, which re also represents the molten stage, and then earth. So I'm going to then do it backwards, which is easier to understand. If you start with something perfectly solid, okay, and then you start applying energy to it, it will, it will then go to the molten state, the water state. It will begin, it becomes soft. If this, if a lot of heat were applied to this plastic thing here, the first thing that would happen is it would begin to melt. And it would begin to run a little bit like water would run. And so the rigidity of the material world represented by this piece of plastic would begin, the application of energy through the form of heat would begin to show us that Behind this rigidity, it can be transformed into something molten that begins to lose its form and it begins to spread out. It begins to sort of become more nebulous in its separation from everything else. If it were sitting on the table, it could melt into the table. Whereas, as long as it's in the earth form, it's absolutely solid. It can't be, it can't be merged with anything else. So, um, and the more fire is applied to earth, taking things through the molten stage, then fire can, t can transform. Well, I've been talking about this house. I had the experience of living at Ananda Village in 1976 when a great deal of that community was burned down. And it was really an amazing experience, um, challenging in certain ways, but also just fascinating. We had worked so hard <laughs> to build these houses we had 22 at that point. This is the collective we, because I didn't actually lose my, my house. I had a little trailer, and it, it wasn't burned. 
But many people, and I was part of that flow of energy, had solidly built these houses with the idea, with the blueprint, with the house. Then this fire came. We had manifested solid on the earth plane. This fire came and it just completely transformed that which was solid into gas. And heat and gas and smoke just billowing out in all directions. And when it was all done, a great deal that had been solid was gone. Some of it had melted. Many things had melted. And then they, when the heat um, uh, receded, you were left with a puddle where you had had a thing before. The puddle may have gone back to earth. But earth was simply transformed by fire. And it was freed of its form. Now, in when you're thinking about a house that you're attached to that you need to live in, you don't necessarily think of it as a positive thing that the form, that the application of heat and energy transformed a material thing into an expansive uh, smoke that went everywhere. And it, it spread out into the air. Matter was changed into air by the application of fire. And then even that dissipated and it, it essentially just disappeared. It just disappeared out to the infinite. All that energy, all that building, all that stuff. And um, houses were reduced to ash. You know, we hear that phrase, reduced to ash. It's really quite an impressive phrase. If you ever even just have a fireplace, which I know in the country of India is not as common, but at least in principle you know what it is. I um, had a wood stove in the trailer that I had at Ananda Village, and gathering wood for the winter was a huge job that <clears throat> I lived with a group of women and some of the men would help us do this. We'd have a couple of times during the summer, we'd have these wood cutting days and we'd drive these trucks out into the forest where there were fallen trees and we had these huge chainsaws and we all, you know, did all the machinery, these huge chainsaws and then there was this log splitter, which was the part I enjoyed the most, and this huge noisy thing with a blade. And you'd take these logs and you'd feed it into the splitter and it would break them in half. I mean, this huge effort on the material plane. We'd load all the wood into the trucks, we'd bring it to where we lived, we'd unload it, we'd stack it. Then you'd have to carry it into the house. And then you had this wood stove and you would feed the wood in. And you'd start the fire, and you'd, you'd sort of watch it begin, and you'd actually hear the water in the wood sizzling out of it, especially if it was damp. You'd hear the water turning to steam. You'd hear it bubbling and uh, being uh, vaporized, as it were, turning into air. And then in the end, no matter how much wood you put in there, if you kept the fire going, you would end up with nothing but ash all of that effort and the application of that energy would turn into nothing but ash and smoke would go up into the chimney and then it would just gradually dissipate you wouldn't even you wouldn't even know where the smoke was now all of that are very vivid spiritual images but what we're also working with you see is our uh, attachment our self-definition our um, perception of reality and how is that perception shifted 
You know, I believe in this material world. You know, I want my uh, security, my house, my this, my that. And then suddenly it becomes a little more changeable. You know, yes, I want a house, but maybe I can have a smaller one in that other neighborhood. Yes, I want a place on this planet, but maybe I can live here or there. And so it still has a definition, but it's become a little more, well, the word is fluid. But then by the application of energy, and one of the aspects of Kriya that we really have to understand is that, yes, Kriya really is a very efficient way to shift the pattern in the chakras, but um, it's still the energy has to be there. If you do Kriya, if you do your meditation very half-heartedly and not very much, without much concentration, without much energy applied to it, it doesn't generate any fire. If, if I have that, a big piece of wood in my wood stove, and during the years that I had a wood stove, I got very attentive and clever to this. You can't just set that big piece of wood in there and then put a little match to it and just hope it'll catch fire. You're going to, have, you're going to be really cold. You have to have a whole system. You have to have paper. You have to have small pieces of kindling. You have to have medium-sized pieces of kindling. You have to have several pieces of wood. It, it takes real energy to transform all that wood into heat. And Kriya Yoga, or right meditation of the right kind, that cooperates with the way things are, that's what makes it right. It's not right because I say so or someone says so. It's because it cooperates with the way things are. You have, there's a system. You have to be able to generate that energy in just the right way, and you have to direct it in the right way. But if you do, if you can generate heat and energy and light, which is what fire is, you can transform. In other words, nothing about us is fixed. No matter how fixed it may seem, even our physical body or our attitudes that we've held for a really long time, they're a pattern. And that pattern can be changed by the application of energy. Fire can transform earth. It moves it through the water stage, through the molten stage, and it transforms it, and it liberates it. You see, the energy is liberated, and first it sails out as air and begins to encompass this reality, and then it becomes even more dispersed and more subtle, and finally merging all the way into spirit, all with the application of energy. Now, in terms of the chakras, of course, this energy, the fire energy, is the solar plexus. And this is the seat of our willpower and our personal power. And this is the fulcrum, the deciding chakra. Because the direction of the third chakra determines whether our energy is pulled down into an ever deeper commitment to a limited definition of reality, or whether that limited definition of reality is liberated by the application of willpower and energy to soar upward. One of the many uh, ways in which the chakras are described are in terms of the Pandava brothers, the five brothers from the story of the Mahabharata, and the third chakra is Arjuna. And it's because Arjuna represents the third chakra that the story is told that the entire success or failure of the battle depends on Arjuna. And the stories become colorful over time and the symbolism 
becomes a little confused, but the way Yogananda explains it, um, the reason the battle depends on Arjuna is because our, the battle of Kukshetra is really the field of our own consciousness. And success or failure depends on the amount of willpower that we direct to transform that which limits us into that which makes us free. And if there's not enough fire, if there's not enough energy, if there's not enough determined willpower applied, then the energy remains fixed and it is not liberated. And now, this begins to talk about, and I will have to um, answer, uh, um, I have to build, I have to go back now and give us a few more details. This begins to answer the question, which chakra should I be working on? Because sometimes people, you know, have a, a very expanded sense of unity with the whole world. Let's say they have the heart chakras wide open and they're very affectionate and loving toward anyone, everyone. But there's no power behind that. There's no fire behind that. It's just a, it's kind of easygoing, but there's no willpower in it. There's no real transforming energy. So it may be that there's, you know, the, the necessity to love people is not something you need to be working on. What you need to be working on is developing more willpower and more power behind that natural affection. Um, I think I won't be any more specific than that for right at the moment because I want to build the chakras uh, an understanding piece by piece. But what I'm saying is, or I actually now I'm going to violate what I just said, the ether chakra, for example, represents a great calmness because everything is the same, so there's an evenness. But once again, if that even-mindedness is really not dynamic, but is actually just a kind of passive, sometimes people use spiritual principles to justify what are really not very spiritual attitudes. You know, that calmness is dynamic, but calmness can also be very passive. But, but it's easier to accept than it is actually to stand up for what I believe in. And so I can justify it by saying, well, I'm calm. Calmness is a spiritual quality. But again, maybe what we need is more fire or more commitment um, to, to the truth that we believe in. Actually, more force in a specific way that the earth might be lacking, even though the calmness is there. And this is what I was saying, how we begin to understand what it is to be a balanced human being. Okay. So now, I want to talk about, I want to start to talk about individual chakras, but I realize I also have to set some more principles in place here. Every chakra is good because all together, all of these elements are necessary. Once we incarnate, you see, we come all the way down to the earth element. We, we take a physical body. You know, the physical body is the earth. That's how it's represented. It's, it's, it's made of the elements of the material plane. And when we um, decide to take a physical body, we have to come all the way into the physical body. Then, then it becomes the vehicle through which we live and through we express ourselves, through which our karma expresses. The, the human body is highly desirable because the human nervous system is capable 
of perceiving infinity. This is what makes the human beings the highest species. Um, we don't, it's not because we're so nice or because we behave so well uh, or it's not as if uh, other animals, other creatures on this planet don't have fine qualities, some of them seemingly better than ours. What makes the human being the highest species is because the nervous system um, is so refined that it's possible to live in a human body and perceive infinity. This is the avatar. The avatar is, is activating a human body and perceiving infinity. I know there are some traditions in which avatars have descended in animal bodies, and I simply can't respond. I have no idea what the answer to that is. But this is how uh, Yogananda explains it. But it is a physical body, so we have to come all the way down to the earth element. We can't pretend that we're not on this planet. And sometimes people who live in a somewhat disbalanced way is because they haven't actually transcended the earth element. They have simply refused to deal with it. I have a friend who's very intelligent, and she said herself that she did not know she had a body until she was in her 40s. She only knew that she had a brain. All she ever knew about was her thoughts. She didn't even know her physical body was there. And she didn't take proper care of it, and she didn't... Uh, uh, learn many of the lessons that it might have been able to teach her. This is why, ideally, when we educate children, we educate all aspects of them. This is where sports and athletics and so on of the right type are actually very helpful, because here we are, they help us to relate properly to the physical body, and the physical body is a means through which we can learn many other lessons. Now, what I was wanting to build is every chakra Meaning we have to go all the way, we have to go through every chakra and we have to use, every chakra serves us spiritually. And even though I talk about the lower chakras and the upper chakras, um, we have to understand that every chakra has a positive expression and a negative expression. By that I mean an ex a way to use that chakra to raise our energy toward a higher reality or a way to use that chakra merely to continually affirm a reality that is not in itself happiness producing. Now everything, everything is right or wrong according to a, a, the experiential principle. Does it increase happiness? Does it reduce suffering? It's not dogma. It's not anybody's sectarian concept. It's not that God is going to punish you. It's not the whim of God or anything like that. It's, does it produce lasting happiness or does it take me into a cul-de-sac? Something that may be pleasurable for a time, but in the end won't give me what I want. What perception of reality am I affirming? And each chakra can either be used to affirm the, the happiness-producing reality, which is to understand ourselves as one with spirit, or the suffering-producing reality that causes us to continually affirm our limitation and therefore be subject to all the fears, anxieties, and insecurities that a wrong perception of reality gives us. Okay, now starting with the earth chakra. Earth, by its nature, it's solid. It's, it, it's fixed. It's able to plant itself and, and hold a certain reality and, and stay with it. 
Okay, so the earth chakra represents steadfast loyalty. Now, on the spiritual path, Yogananda says, he uses this phrase, loyalty, he said, is the first law of God. And he's partly referring to the first chakra. Loyalty is the foundation. Now, loyalty um, and this, this, uh, confast, uh, this concept of being steadfast in our beliefs, if it's rightly expressed, if we are loyal to the right principles, if we are loyal to divine truth, if we're loyal to the idea that my true nature is infinite, that I am, in fact, um, an expression of divinity inhabiting the physical body, but I am not defined by the physical body, and if, even in the face of enormous challenges, I can hold to that truth, you know, that's a very positive spiritual expression. Now, if we take that same sort of fixity and instead of perceiving a high truth and being loyal to that high truth, we become rigid in our definition of self. You know, there's nothing but the physical world, just what I can see. I am a physical body. Why should I try to be any different than that? And, and you're dealing with the same fact, but you're giving your loyalty to a, a low expression. And the earth chakra also represents our source of security. And where do we get our security from? Okay. Now, the earth uh, element tells us that the material world is the solid world. And the more solidly rooted we are in that world, the more secure we're going to become. So people who have experienced the earth chakra but who have turned the energy away from spirit and too much to the earth itself, think my security comes from money, my security comes from solid planting on this earth, and such people often will want big houses and big furniture and big cars and big power because the more I have of the earth element, the more solid and safe I am. Or you can say, my security comes from the spirit. And then you've taken that um, same uh, inclination to look for something solid, but instead of uh, clinging to that which is inherently ephemeral, we're clinging to that which is solid and inside. So people can become, uh, you know, quite uh, pig-headed. If the earth chakra is out of balance, pig-headed is an American expression. I don't know if it's an Indian one or not. What it actually means is when we are committed, but not committed to truth, we're just committed to what we happen to believe in. And we're not intellectually interested or emotionally interested enough in the real definition of things. We just become pig-headed. We just, you know, root around in what we've already determined is true. So the earth chakra by itself, what we need, now this is another piece of it that I haven't exactly explained. Let me just think how to say this clearly. Um, I'm, I think I'm a little bit out of time, so I can't say it as clearly as I want to. But, but the energy of our life has to circulate through every chakra. 
but it circulates in a pattern where it 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 draws energy from all, from all the chakras, but then it expresses them if we're balanced and as we ought to be under the mastery of the spiritual eye. In other words, all these levels exist within us, but we will we will use them in harmony with our spiritual self. So people often talk about the chakras being blocked, that the energy can't flow through them, and that's a valid way to think about it. Another way to think about it that I find also just useful as an image is that where the energy needs to circulate through the chakras and essentially draw the power of the earth to be used in a spiritual way. Let's think about Swami Kriyananda, who was so committed to discipleship and serving his guru. He was steadfast and loyal by any measure, but all of that was used in service of truth. So either the energy is drawn upward and used in service of the highest reality, or else it's just expressed on the level of that chakra. Okay, so I I say it has a hole in it. The chakra has a hole in it, and the energy just drains out of it. So if we take all of the energy that is that comes into us as the life force and just use it to root ourselves ever more deeply in this material world to have solid physical habits that we can't change i always have to have my coffee and my croissant at exactly the same period of time i have to sleep in my own bed i have to live in my own town i have to have people cooperate with just what i want that we give nothing but rigid forms and we get our security from those rigid forms, it's like we're misusing the earth chakra. But if we take the power of that commitment and use it to anchor ourselves in divine principles, then we're using the power of the earth chakra to uplift our energy. Okay? So now you can begin to think, you know, sort of what's in balance with me, what's out of balance. Maybe we're not powerfully rooted enough in the principles we believe in. Or maybe we're, we're too rooted to the form of those principles and not rooted enough to the principles themselves. Maybe instead of seeking our security with attune inwardly by lifting our energy into attunement with God, we're too dependent on having everything in the material world hold the form that we want it to form so that we'll feel secure. But you see, security is a fundamental human need. And that's what the earth chakra represents. It's not like we can live without feeling secure. The question only is, where do we draw our security from? What is lastingly real? Who am I? Where does happiness come from? And we start answering these questions chakra by chakra. And we have two more sessions. So I'll finish describing the chakras, and then we'll talk about what you can do when you perceive your nature in a certain way. What can you do in an inward way, besides Kriya, to specifically strengthen yourself in whatever ways you need to be strengthened? Well, my friends, I think that will be sufficient for this session. We have two more sessions in which to cover this material. If you have any questions, send them in during the week. I did receive one that I didn't answer yet, because I needed to set the groundwork more, but I will answer it later. So, God bless you.